The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of WTJX, its board, staff, or underwriters. Good day. You are listening to Ability Radio. I'm one of your co-hosts, Amelia Headley-Lamont of the Disability Rights Center of the Virgin Islands. And today we are so excited and privileged to have a new leader in the disability rights movement. Her name is Marlena Saigel. She is the newest executive director of the National Disability Rights Network. Good day, Good day. I'm so happy to be here with you. I'm so happy that you've agreed to to tell us about your work, about your ascension to this very important position. But before we begin, let's talk a little bit about um, the organization that you lead, the National Disability Rights Network. What, what can you let us know about that organization? So it is a federally mandated organization, and we actually are a membership organization, the the largest uh, legal advocacy organization in the United States. We have uh, 57 member agencies. There is a protection and advocacy agency across the U.S. in every single state and U.S. territory, which the Virgin Islands is one of our member agencies. And we also have uh, 13 CAP agencies that are also members with NDRN. And we are truly, I am truly honored to lead this agency and to be able to lift up um, and amplify the work that every single protection and advocacy agency is conducting on behalf of people with disabilities nationwide. You, you've been quoted as saying that uh, we've, we all want to be seen and heard, and for too yeah. long there's been too many invisible, and that includes people with disabilities, correct? That is correct. You know, I think that America, not even just America, people in general are unaware of the fact that one in every four individuals in the United States um, has a disability. Um, And some disabilities are visible and some are invisible. I myself have an invisible disability. But at the end of the day, whether it is visible or not, the voices of all individuals with disabilities um, must be heard, should be heard, should be acknowledged. Um, and the experience that we bring to the table uh, should be honored. Um, and that is um, my driving force in this job is to make sure that I am elevating the needs of all individuals with disabilities and amplifying the voices of folks with disabilities, as well as our great uh, network of advocates throughout the U.S. Now, I, I must admit, I've invo- been involved with this movement, so to speak, for the last 25 years, and I'm particularly excited by your appointment on that you are a Latina and a woman and a person of color. And for people who live in the U.S. Virgin Islands, this is a very significant and any you know community of color is very um, pleased with this change <laughs> in, in focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm curious, what do you see... Um, as as uh, some of the, I guess, pressure points that you want to make some um, inroads in while you're in this position? Um, I think, as we know, historically, the movement uh, was not as diverse as it should have been. Um, and so making sure that um, we are bringing forth uh, the voices of 
everyone and not just a few Mm -hmm. is so very important to me. I think it's also about, I can't speak for every single um, diverse community out there, but what what I have seen and what I have been able to observe is that nine times out of 10, it's the voices of minorities with disabilities that are um, in the background. They're not front and center. And so how can we make sure that they are always front and center um, and that um, they have a seat at the table? And if there's no seat at the table, because I always used to say, I'm going to bring my own chair (laughs) if there's no seat at the table. And now I'm like, you know what? I'm just building my own table. Right. And so making sure that uh, we are any work that we do as we move forward um, is centered around disability justice um, is so very important. Um, And always, always understanding that any work that we do at NBRN or throughout the network has to be informed by those with lived experience um, at all times. Um, You know, when I first started uh, working for a PNA, at the state level before uh, being elevated to this position, I held a conference, uh, a voting rights conference, and um, I made it my goal from the beginning of planning that conference to reach out to um, communities throughout um, the state um, that were diverse in nature to make sure that individuals from from the communities that also had a disability um, were in attendance for this voting rights conference And I remember uh, a a lady in the audience saying that that was the first time that anyone had actively reached out to invite her, that as a woman with a disability, a woman of color, she often felt invisible in the movement Mm. because she was not included in the conversations. Um, When outreach was conducted, it wasn't conducted within her community or it was conducted in a way that was ableist in nature. Mm -hmm. And so she really appreciated the opportunity to be invited um, to the conference and to also be given an opportunity to speak um, and share her story. Mm. And that um, remains very important to me is, are we allowing those that have lived experience who also happen to be uh, diverse um, to have that space to share their stories and to be heard? Now you use the phrase PNA, and so for the folks who don't know what a protect PNA is, it's a it's the protection a, and advocacy agency, which is federally mandated, mm-hmm. and um, there is a PNA agency in every state in U.S. territory, and we also have a PNA for Native Americans in the the Four Corners area of the Southwest of the U.S. And you also use the term ableist. Let us, can you tell the community or let us know what, what, what does that mean? How, how is that um, something that we need to be more mindful of? I think, um, so I don't really know an exact definition for it, um, to be honest with you, because Mm -hmm. it's, I think it means a little different to everyone, but I think overall we need to be aware of the language that we use, the fact that we approach things as if everyone has the ability to do mm-hmm. what you're doing, whereas not everyone does. It also speaks to the fact that sometimes individuals will use language that's inflammatory in nature, mm-hmm. which, you know, and they'll be like, well, this is what we've always used to say. Well, 
that doesn't mean that it's appropriate. Right. It's also understanding that perhaps someone with a disability may make you uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean that you have the right to ignore um, who that person is as a whole person or um, to come up with language to describe them that's inappropriate and is not supportive. Um, I think sometimes ableist could be something as, as simple as, you know, you have a temporary broken ankle and you're comparing yourself to someone who lives their life um, using and has to use a wheelchair, right? Um, right? And so that's also ableist or, you know, someone who um, is experiencing, you know, who, who may be deaf um, and you're comparing yourself to them because you have an eardrum problem on that particular day. Right. Um, it's really being conscientious of the fact that your language um, can make someone feel othered and can make them feel um, discriminated against, um, regardless of what your (laughs) intent was. Um, If it's offensive, um, it should not be used. Um, If you think it's funny, guess what? It's not. Um, And so just be conscious of that. Um, And even in the workplace, assuming that someone doesn't need an accommodation um, because visibly they don't seem, quote unquote, to have a disability is also very ableist and should not take place in in the workplace. Now, tell us about yourself. How did you even come to this particular, you know, line of work? What what was Marlena Sayo doing before she was the executive director of the National Disability Rights Network? Um, so I, as far as I can remember, I've always, um, tried to be, um, an ally. And, um, I recall, uh, in, in elementary school, there was a a young man, um, who in retrospect probably had a disability, but all the kids used to pick on him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always used to stand up for him because it was just my nature. Mm-hmm. But um, when I went to college, I really thought I was going to be a doctor or a surgeon to be exact. Oh, um, okay. But I did an internship. I was a psych major and I did an internship with the Rice Psychiatric um, Institute. Um, and they partnered me with kids. Uh, with students in elementary school with disabilities. And I just, I, it just, it made me happy. Uh Um, I felt like I was doing something important and I was helping them out because for me, it's like, we all have the ability to learn. Um, And just because a child has um, specific needs for accommodations doesn't mean that child cannot excel. And so I, I took great pride in helping the students reach their full potential by uh, providing what I now know is an accommodation. But in college, I just knew like, there's a different way of learning. Let's figure out what works best for you. Um, So I ultimately became a special education teacher and became very passionate about uh, helping my students um, reach their full potential. And I still remain in contact with a handful of my students. But as a result of being in the classroom, I also saw And working in the inner city, I saw that a lot of my students who were in a special education um, class um, also were involved in the child welfare system and or the juvenile justice system. So I ultimately went to law school to represent the rights of what we call dually involved youth Mm -hmm. um, with uh, special uh, 
with needs for academic accommodations or just uh, academic supports. And that's been the story of my career is, is, is being an advocate for youth um, with disabilities um, that are involved in child welfare, you know, in foster care and or uh, juvenile detention. Um, and I ultimately ended up working at the Florida PNA as an education attorney um, and also um, was the executive director for the Massachusetts Protection and Advocacy Agency. But even when I'm not working within the NDRN network, I am still front and center advocating um, for um, anyone who uh, needs an accommodation um, and should be receiving an accommodation. And I'm also very big on accessible um, buildings um, and I, anything and everything needs to be accessible. And so I've been known to attend um, architect uh, conferences, uh, urban planning conferences, and be the voice that says, you know, uh, when you're planning any community, any building, any facility, uh, make sure that it's accessible from the beginning. Why do we have to then retrofit when you can do it right the first time? <laughs> exactly. You were also appointed by President, former President Obama to serve as the what, staff director of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Tell I us was. about that job. Whoa. So as, as an immigrant child um, that, that will live with me forever, it was not something I ever planned on doing. Um, I didn't even know it was possible to be appointed by a president, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that um, my name was put forth and, um, you know, President Obama and the administration felt that I was worthy of that position was extremely important. And while at the commission, we were able to hold some very significant and important um, public hearings and issue reports on many different topics, um, including um, the school to prison pipeline yes. at the state level in yes. um, multiple states across the US. Um, we also you know, had a, a hearing on sexual assault in the military, which was really big while I was there. Mm -hmm. It was one of the biggest projects I worked on. And also the Amtala Act, um, where we found individuals um, who had a mental health diagnosis um, who were seeking assistance in an emergency room in Nevada would be, um, I guess, for lack of a better term, um, they would be seen mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, for a few hours and then given a one-way bus ticket to California because Nevada in that particular facility was trying to avoid servicing individuals with mental health diagnoses. Hmm. Um, so uh, the commission is there to really look at uh, discrimination across the U.S. Um, and to issue reports and to basically make sure that uh, the federal government or the federal rules as they are implemented are not violating the rights of individuals in the U.S. Well, another thing I, I noted in your bio, so to speak, is that you were one of the USA Today's Women of the Year. And that's <laughs> yes. because of your, your work for access for children and civil rights. And congratulations, first of all. Thank you. That um, was a shock. Um, I... I was working um, at the McCain Institute at the time and a reporter reached out to our communications team um, and they asked to speak with me. And of course I had no idea why. I thought it had to do with the fact that when I was in Massachusetts, 
I served on the Massachusetts Commission for Women. Uh-huh. And so they had just had a hearing the night before. And I'm like, this person's calling me about the hearing. <laughs> nope. It was to let me know I had been chosen. Um, and it's it's uh, it's an honor. It's truly an honor to be recognized um, at the state level right. for the work that I was able to do while in Massachusetts. Um, very unexpected um, and very humbling. Absolutely. Well, congratulations on that as well. Thank you. Um, you you just mentioned that you served as director of preventing targeted violence at the McCain Institute. I'm assuming it's the John McCain Institute. Is that correct? Yes. That is that is it. So yes. t- tell us what what did that involve? What did that work involve? Um, and it was once again back to the space that I live in best. So it was actually working with high school students and university students on uh, semester long competitions. Uh, youth know best as to what they need mm-hmm. um, and they have the best ideas as to how to solve problems, especially those that are directly affecting them. And what we see nationwide, even globally, is that we have uh, recruiters um, that are intent on causing uh, violence um, based on a person's identity um, across the U.S. and globally. And so they worked on projects um, on how to address incel-related thought processes, right? Like incels, these are men that feel that uh, women are to blame for their unhappiness and they will set out and attack them, whether uh, you identify as a person of Jewish faith or Muslim faith, they come after you based on your your faith. Uh, They come after you because of your race or ethnicity. And so how do we work together as a society to um, address these concerns um, and to educate the public? So I work closely um, through a grant from Homeland Security with students uh, nationwide, as well as in Europe. Mm -hmm. So I had students and then worked with universities, um, both in France and in England on these issues. Um, And what I found was, um, at least in Europe, what they're finding is individuals on the autism spectrum Mm -hmm. are being recruited by violent extremists. um, And they're being persuaded to adhere to uh, an extremist ideology, and they're being motivated to take the necessary steps to commit a heinous and violent act. And so how do we work to educate the public, to educate Uh, loved ones of individuals on the spectrum on what to be looking out for, especially nowadays when individuals are using the online space to communicate with strangers across the globe. Um, And how can we shore up um, an education process? So as a result of the year that I was there, I worked on and ultimately uh, was able to see the launch Mm -hmm. of a uh, website, an online website for parents. Um, that pretty much gives them resources and, and um, gives them questions that they should be asking in, in conversation with uh, their children or um, any young adult that they, were, that they know or love um, to make sure that we remain engaged in the lives of our kids and our young adults so that they feel that there's a safe space to come to um, if there's ever any concern about what is being done to them or what people are suggesting they should be doing. Wow. So and there's you're saying they're focusing on children from the with well young young children and young adults with um autism 
autism spectrum yes, diagnosis. Yes. That's, That's very what interesting. They're, they're finding in Europe. I, um, and, you know, the concern is that it'll ultimately come here because, you know, you have the, the wide, wide web and anyone can access it. Right, um, right. So as the new director of a national disability rights organization, what are some things you would like to look into and accomplish? Um, you know, I know it's probably a little soon, right? Because you just started. <laughs> That's probably not a fair question, but uh, I'll ask it anyway. What, are, I, <laughs> what do you see for yourself? I mean, I am just excited about the fact that I can really amplify on a continuous basis the work that's being done on the ground by the PNAs. But I'm all, I also see myself as a spokesperson for the network mm -hmm. to really get out there um, and and say to folks, hey, if you're having a meeting, you know, on the in, in Pennsylvania and this issue is coming up about housing, right, and access to housing. You should have individuals from our PNA at that table. You should have individuals with lived experience at the table. Um, I, I think for me, front and center is the fact that time and time again, conversations are taking place and we're not being invited. We're not being invited to those conversations. Right. So how can you speak about economic equity? Right. Mm -hmm. And not have individuals from the community, from the disability community there in the room to have those discussions with you. Um, how can you speak about, um, you know, housing? Right. We're all everywhere we turn. There are issues with affordable housing right now. Right. So how can we not be at the table, no matter whether it's in the city, the county, the state or the federal level? where they're discussing affordable housing and not have us at the table. When we're talking about COVID, make sure that how COVID has horrifically affected our community is front and center as you're coming up with new policies or new funding streams to assist communities that need the assistance. Um, emergency management, right? Mm -hmm. And responding to um, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, make sure that we're always there front and center to have those discussions because it's not a one size fits all right. when it comes to the response that we're taking as a society at large. And so you need to know what the needs of our community um, are or is in order for you to be able to provide the resources that we need so that we can have the same opportunities as everyone else. Right. So you mentioned as issues, emergency management, correct, COVID, absolutely, affordable housing, uh, voting. Are there any other hot button issues that um, you think the network or the, the movement needs to hone in on? Oh, my God. What, what, what shouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I, I think that's, and uh, you know, I, I'm frank, right? Like that's the difficulty that I have. It's like, people are like, well, you know, what are the top three? I said, but everything is important. Right. Everything affects each and every one of us differently, but it's all important. I will say, you know, we saw what happened in New York city recently, right? Where individuals who are houseless, who also may have a mental health diagnosis, um, are all of a sudden being picked up, right? And they're going to be placed in a facility <laughs> um, because they, New York City mayor feels that, you know, that's the best way to address this issue. Mm -hmm. But is it really? Is it really? Are we going to go back in time 
right? Mm-hmm. And start institutionalizing individuals again because you failed to provide, you know, community services um, that are 360 degrees of services or that you're failing to provide affordable housing um, and opportunities for employment. Um, and so I think that as a nation, we tend to react mm-hmm. to a situation and not plan effectively. And we also fail to look at the whole person. Right. We just look at one aspect of the person. Um, you know, one of the greatest things that came out of, you know, working in, you know, the ter- in special education, and I know we're getting away from using that terminology, but is the multidisciplinary team where if it's really effective, you're going to have teachers at the table that um, teach all of the subjects to the student to really talk about what's the best education plan for that student. Well, what's the best life plan for individuals with disabilities when they become adult, right? Mm-hmm. Like we can't just focus on, oh, you need housing or, oh, you need insurance or no, we need to look at all of the needs of the individual and we all need to come together and discuss those needs and discuss the needs of the whole person and how we can really work together to come up with how to meet those needs as a whole and not just individually. Um, And I think that's the biggest thing for me. Like I was at a summit recently and they were talking about um, you know, the IDDD community. And, and that was like, now you're going to have to explain thing. that. What's oh, an IDDD? <laughs> yes. Individuals with intellectual disabilities or developmental disabilities. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's not just talking about, you know, Medicaid or Medicare. It's also talking about access to a personal assistant if that's needed or access to accessible housing and affordable housing or access to transportation, especially if the person is also a wheelchair user. And how how do we make sure that as a community, um, we're taking all of that into consideration? Um, I mean, I remember here in, in the Boston area, COVID hit, right? And so now everybody has to scramble for, from a voting rights perspective, some of the, the voting locations were shut down and so they had to go to a different polling site. Um, and nobody took into consideration the fact that some of these new polling sites were inaccessible. And then we had individuals calling us saying, okay, well, now I've got to take four buses to get there oh. and I'm a wheelchair user. And then when I finally got there, it was in such a location where my wheelchair, there was like no curb cuts and I couldn't get on the curb. And I had to go three blocks away and then turn around. I mean. Yeah. Like when we're making this these decisions as a community, can we just take into account everyone that lives in the community and not just some people? Right. Um, no, that's that's understandable. Um, in the 30 seconds we have left, when will you be coming to the Virgin Islands? <laughs> <laughs> Whenever we can work it out, I would be more than honored to come out there. Okay, that sounds good. Um, there's so many more questions I'd love to ask you. And, and I want to, again, commend you for your new position and the fact that uh, you will be, I think, a, a vocal, uh, you know, advocate for not only 
the states, but also the territories. You will remember us and we will be sure that we, you know, have a seat at the table, so to speak. Folks, I want to thank you so much for listening to this program, Ability Radio. Our special guest today was Marlena Sajo, Executive Director of the National Disabilities Rights Network. Have a good day and thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. Views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of WTJX, its board, staff, or underwriters.